This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome, everybody. This is Leadership in Action, Sirius XM's business radio powered by us, the Wharton School. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm here with Ann Greenhall, my good friend and the deputy director of the McNulty Leadership Program. I'm with that program and the Center for Leadership and Change. And, of course, our topic, Ann, is Leadership in Action. Exactly. So how are you? I'm good, Mike. How oh, are good, you today? Good. It's you opening a, day. Uh, baseball began yeah, today. I, I, I'm surprised you're here, Mike. Uh, I have. Well, I think it was an <laughs> afternoon game in our case. Yes, it was. And That's I, true. I've avoided looking at the score. Oh, Should, good. Oh. I have also. But I'm wondering if Bryce Har- Harper made a hit. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave my editorial comment. He better make <laughs> he a hit. He better make a hit. Right. Yeah. Okay. I'll, leave, I'll leave, leave that on the table. All right. So, uh, and our uh, our partner here, uh, Jeff Klein, is off this evening. So In it's fact, you know be, where he is? Uh, he was at the game. Was he at the yes. game? Okay. He, he represented us. Yes, I, he yeah. represented us. Someone I, I, had to. Yeah, somebody had to do yes. that. Uh, this evening, then, we're going to be speaking with uh, Christopher Marr, who is president and CEO of Ocean First Financial and Ocean First Bank. He's got a really interesting story. We're going to talk with him. He's actually going to join us right here in the studio. But before we turn to Chris, um, let me just, uh, as a warm-up moment here, ask a a little bit of an odd question. Uh, We've got a whole bunch of students today who have gone down on a a couple buses to the U.S. Marine Corps base at Quantico, Virginia, to go through a program that goes back, in our case, at least 15 or 16 years now, with the Marines Officer Candidate School. And the basic concept, coming to a question here, is to put our students, in this case MBA students, mm-hmm. in a position where they're having to make very tough decisions under the tutelage of Marine instructors. They get a lot of very tough love or feedback. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, I've heard. <laughs> uh, now, and Anne, I know you're very involved in our undergraduate equivalent, and mm-hmm. that is uh, the programs yeah. where we take students to sometimes faraway places, sometimes mm-hmm. nearby. Just... Uh, Innocent question here, why do we take students off campus and put them in these sometimes rather challenging settings? I mean, haven't they kind of got everything they need from the classroom? (laughs) Very good. Well, Mike, the answer to that is in the title of our show, Leadership Uh, in Action. action. In Action. And it's uh, very important to take people out of their comfortable situation and put them in what we call stretch experiences. And I think of it a little bit like a rubber band. You want the rubber band to pull tight, but not so tight that it snaps or not so loose that it's flaccid. You want to give a little bit of a stretch experience to the students. And I think a lot of companies have moved in the same direction of of taking managers into a setting, maybe a, a team building exercise on a ropes course, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Underlying pedagogical philosophy? Um, I think it has to do, in my Hmm. mind, with the difference between knowledge and learning, or let me say knowledge and wisdom. We can certainly learn a lot. And in fact, Mike, I've heard you say that we need to be good students of leadership. So certainly reading, listening to a show like this, all that is part of the education. But we also need to experiment and try and reflect and try again. And that comes from action, from actually being out there and doing something. So it's one thing to talk about leadership. It's another thing to actually try it and do it. 
I mean, it's a fairly distinctive topic in the curriculum in that sense in that uh, many areas, if you read the textbook and take the lectures and get really good at exams, you, you kind of – you're the master of the material. I, I was a science major as an undergraduate and that was kind of my life. But leadership is a bit different, I gather. Right, about uh, learning, knowledge, and also doing, and wisdom. And Mike, I know, you know, on the show we've also yeah. talked about the importance of getting feedback and coaching, yeah. whether it's from people who are close to us, who might be in an advisory <laughs> capacity, maybe a coach, maybe an executive coach. So that triangle of uh, a little bit of book learning, a little bit of hmm. experience, and a little bit of coaching can go a long way to helping helping us exercise leadership the best we can. So, and I want to stretch that out with, uh, this is my segue now. Right. <laughs> I'm going to stretch that out <laughs> okay. saying, uh, let's see, we got to read about leadership, uh, great to watch leaders in action on television, great to take people into a position where they got to exercise leadership. Mm-hmm. And in my own experience, an equally powerful method or kind of avenue is to bring people into direct dialogue with those who are in leadership positions. Absolutely. And that's why, Mike, I mm-hmm. feel so fortunate to have this opportunity to be here with you, with Jeff and our guests week on week, because I always walk away learning something. Same here. And that uh, brings us then back to uh, Chris Marr, who is in our studio. Right. Chris, great to have you here tonight. Great to be here tonight. Thank you. Chris, I'm just going to offer up a couple words about you, not much, and then we're going to plunge right in. Sure. If people want to join the program, here's the phone number to give us a call, 844-942-7866. This is Channel 132, just to repeat what channel you're listening to here on Sirius XM. And Chris, you've been in banking, I know, for some time. You're chief executive now of um, uh, Ocean First Bank. I learned just before we went on the air, you've got about $8 billion under management, uh, about 1,000 employees. You're publicly listed. And uh, But just to go back uh, earlier in your earlier days, what brought you into financial services? And then if you could uh, kind of finish off that piece, what brought you to this bank in particular? Sure. So, you know, when you think about – I think sometimes when you look back in life and you say, how did I get to the position I got to – the path wasn't as straight as, as maybe it might have seemed to others. Yeah. And I think when you start out, you know, early in life trying to think about what you want to do, you have all these crazy thoughts about, you know. And I remember small kid, you know, you look at things that I thought were exciting, right? You want to be a fireman or a cop or something like that. And uh, But, you know, over time and, and really when I was in school, uh, particularly in college, I had the opportunity to both. And, you know, I worked myself through college, so I had jobs all the time. Uh, I had the opportunity to work um, at a bank during college and got some exposure to the banking business through doing that. And and I hit upon something when I was doing that that I, I found really intriguing, which is um, I was in a very small role in, in a department where I was writing up the call reports for commercial loan officers. And so as a part of that, I was hmm. typing these things in and reading about the life of a commercial lender. And it occurred to me it was a fascinating thing to get to know all these different businesses and all these um, uh, leaders who had built their, in many cases, family businesses and some manufacturing and some service businesses and some you know, distribution businesses. And I thought, wow, this is a place where I could you know, meet a lot of interesting people, uh, really learn a lot about the world, especially the, the kind of world of business and commerce. And uh, so one thing led to another. After I uh, got out of school, I um, – was able to join a, a, a leadership program, and, and one thing went to another. And here you are as chief executive. Uh, 
before we leave that, Chris, uh, that being your, your involvement in, in the commercial loan business, I've often thought it puts a special premium on your ability to look at a, a would-be borrower in the eye and make a judgment call. Does this person <laughs> bring the kind of the right thought, the right integrity, the, the right leadership? Because you're going to bet on that person with often quite a bit of money, unlike retail customers where you've got lots and, and the loans are small and if one defaults, less problematic. So, uh, Chris, that's my preamble. <laughs> From your um, uh, commercial business days and probably even now, how do you size up uh, a would-be recipient of uh, one of your larger loans as worthy of that faith in them that you are, in a sense, giving as you then write a big check over to them? You make an excellent point. So I think one of the uh, things that's greatly misunderstood is there's a financial aspect of that where you're getting yeah. income statements and tax returns and, you, and you're doing math around their capacity to repay the loan. Uh, but that's a fairly basic function and it's not a difficult thing to learn how to spread financials. Uh, you hit the nail on the head when you started to talk about maybe character and and especially the knowledge of their business. So I'll, I'll share a quick story. We had a um, – I was out one day on calls, and I met uh, it was two different companies. One was a bus company, a school bus company. The other one was a uh, regional uh, trucking company. Uh, so very similar industries, transportation mm-hmm. industries, family-owned, and in the generational transition between, in this case, kind of father and son. And in company A, uh, every time I asked a question, if we're walking through the yard and, you know, how much does a tire cost? What, is it, what does it take to rehab an engine? How long do you get out of the the chassis on this thing, and uh, the son was jumping in and answering every question immediately. Hmm. So he knew what a tire cost. He knew what a retread cost. He knew what an oil change cost. He knew how many miles he could get out of an engine. And it was clear that this kid had grown up in this business and knew every aspect of it. And then we go to company B, and I'm asking a very similar range of questions. And I'm getting a, well, I have to get back to you. I'm not sure. Let me go check with someone. Mm-hmm. And you're able to quickly diagnose both companies were financially healthy. But the second company uh, was going to suffer through a very hard generational transition because the the new generation coming in didn't know the business to the extent the first one did. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really, really important. And Chris, I know there's a subtlety to that dialogue. It it often entails, as you just said, a lot of active listening. Uh, Everybody – certainly everybody comes to you. They've got a pretty good balance sheet. They're articulate. Uh, but then there are these uh, subtleties, and a, uh, maybe a way to get at that is, in your own experience, is there a question or two that for you really helped you appreciate the character of the person sitting across the table? I think there are, there are a few questions that would come up in almost every conversation, right? You, you want to understand who your companies are competing with. It's very important to understand, oh, well, you know, if you're in this business – who do you compete with and how do, you, how do you position yourself versus that competitor? And that's a very the, – the answers to that are fascinating because you get the real strategy behind the company. Um, and then you also ask them the second important question is uh, let's talk about when things did not go well. So what happened? You know, what was your biggest challenge, your worst year, your, um, you know, did you, if you had to suffer through a customer bankruptcy? And, you know, those kinds of things because you're going to start to understand from experience in the event things go bad. And they do. You know, even the, even the best businesses have these challenges. How are the folks you're dealing with going to deal with things? And I'll, and I'll share something which may surprise people. Often a company that had financial trouble and was in default with their bank – 
is an excellent company to be dealing with <laughs> because you learn a tremendous amount about how they react when they're in default. Are they going to sit down with you? Are they going to work out a plan? Because when you work collaboratively, many of these opportunities, everybody gets out fine, right? The bank gets paid. The company gets paid. It goes on. Um, so understanding what are they like when the chips are down is every bit as important as what does their income statement look like. That's great. Chip, I got a couple of comments and I'm going to hand the baton over here to Ann. Uh, number one, academics often in our academic speak tend to refer to that referred to that as behavioral interviewing. <laughs> so we know you're great and the adjectives, uh, you're, you're decisive and resilient, but let's talk through something you've done. So let's tell me about your, your behavior. That's an academic term, we, uh, is, is a pretty dry term, but I think it gets at the point. You do want to get to what people actually did as a way of judging who they are. And on this point of how they got through a tough spot, I'm reminded and I'll just throw this back at you, of a person we had on the show uh, now a couple months ago who used to run Cisco, John Chambers, mm -hmm. who ran Cisco for 20 years. He's written a great new book about his time there. And he said on the show and also in his book <clears throat> that the famous Jack Welsh of GE called him up one time and said, uh, John, have you been through a bit of a mess? And <laughs> that was a leading question because Cisco, when the Internet bubble burst a few years back, just tumbled off a cliff. And John Chambers said a little bit sheepishly, yeah, it was pretty rough. We went from 80% annual growth to 40% annual contraction. says, I, I didn't know you can get 120% variance, <laughs> but there it was, from 80 up to 40 down. And uh, the immediate reaction of Jack Welsh was, now you know how to run a company because mm -hmm. you've been through the ringer. So I, I think I hear you saying a little bit the same thing there. What, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. You, you want to <clears throat> make sure these folks understand what to do when things are down because that, that happens. The other thing, and, I, and I'm struck by the behavioral interviewing you were talking about, um, the second technique mm -hmm. that I learned early in my career was in addition to kind of finding out about that is to ask increasingly detailed questions so that as you're going through the stories, you can tell whether – how grounded those stories are. You know, so if you had this issue, oh, which customer? What huh. happened? When did it happen? Who did the workout? You know, and, and you're able to then dis, uh, discern whether they're telling you an interesting story about something that happened to someone else or something they actually yeah. did. And yeah. being able to – and you will find some people can master those details and those are usually the people that had their hands on resolving the problem instead of, hey, we had a problem and my general counsel fixed it. Chris, that's good. I'm going <clears> to <throat> remind everybody that you're listening to Leadership in Action. This is Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I am Mike Yusim. I'm with uh, Ann Greenhall. We're talking to Chris Marr, President and CEO of Ocean, Ocean First Financial and Ocean First Bank. Ann, over to you. Great. Thank you, Chris. A real pleasure to have a chance to mm. speak with you. I'm going to pick up on Mike's line of questioning and just uh. ask you, Let's say uh, you've, you're in a situation in which you have done behavioral interviewing, as Mike said, and in the case of Company B, you're uncertain about whether or not you really should make this loan. How do you go about making that tough decision not to give the loan? And then moreover, how do you back that to those who might be saying, what do you mean you didn't make the loan? <laughs> the company looks great financially. So how do you do that? Well, first I'd say that that decision takes uh, fortitude. And it, it, mm -hmm. you have to stick to your principles and your guidelines. 
And particularly, it's a very timely uh, thought process. You know, at this point in the economic expansion, mm. you know, there is some risk, not near term, but maybe in the next couple of years, we might be in a recession or at least, a, you know, more acute slowdown. So the decisions we make today are going to play out in a year or two. You, know, you, you don't make bad loans during bad times. You make bad loans during good times. Uh, <laughs> this is great. They just turn bad I'm writing later. this yeah. down, Mike. Uh, so, so I think it's very important that you stick to your yeah. principles. The other thing that I, uh, that I think is very helpful is to be able to quickly communicate with your prospects, your clients, your decision. Bad news uh, doesn't get any better if you wait on it. Uh, most people respect a quick answer. So if you can't do something and you say, look, you know, uh, it's not a project that works for us, and here's why. And you give them the opportunity to run somewhere else that, that, that works. Um, stalling that so they get time and energy involved hurts them and their business. So you have to be very prompt. And then I always like to characterize things uh, by explaining to a potential client the reason that we're unable to meet their request in such a way that gives them an opportunity to go back, maybe adjust their business and come back hmm. and be eligible. So. For example, if, if you had a tremendous concentration of revenue in one customer, that would be a red flag. And you know, we might say, look, I can understand you've got a great business here, but all of your contracts are with, say, Microsoft. So if Microsoft decides they don't like you anymore, you're in really big trouble here. So I can't make the loan on these terms today. However, if you're able to work on diversifying your concentration mm-hmm. of revenue in that client – I think we might be able to do something for you here. Um, and, uh, and I think giving them guidance, uh, ultimately a very good commercial lender mm. is, an, is, an, is an asset and a support to their clients. You're, you're telling folks, I know you'd like to do this project, but look at how much leverage you're taking on. This looks good today. Um, and I'll tell you, many of our clients respect us when we hold the line. And you'll hear from them a year or two later, you know, mm. I wanted to buy this thing and you guys – counseled me against it. And I think that was the right choice. So having your principles, sticking to them, and then explaining them quickly, concisely, owning owning the decision and being clear with your clients. Yeah, that's great. So you're really giving people feedback or coaching in what they can do next time that they apply for that loan. Now, in your example, you gave uh, a moment in which the prospective client has all of the eggs in one basket. How about in the situation where, as you described earlier, you've got a father-son transition and you can see that the son is not really particularly engaged in the business, so you're cautious about giving that loan for that reason. Would that be grounds? Oh, absolutely. But the way we would handle that, usually in those situations, we've had a long track record with the family and the business. And we would engage within, let's say it's the father or the mother, right, who's running the business. We would say, look, you know, um, as you – we'd like to help you with your generational transition. Um, we understand that you'd like to have your son or daughter take the business in the next generation. But we need to see more of them. We need to be more actively involved. <laughs> so from now on when we come out to visit you, we'd really uh, appreciate if you have them in the meeting. Uh, the next time we're doing an, an ordinary course renewal next year, maybe you can send them in to do the renewal with us. Um, you know, th- those kinds of things that – may help um, the new generation understand because sometimes it's just a lack of familiarity. You know, the you may have a child in the business who's been in the business for 10 years, but they never dealt with the bank or mm-hmm. the financial statements, yeah. and they need that kind of training and help. So uh, often what we would say is we would really encourage folks and say we need to see you know, your family members more, right? Mm-hmm. We need to – if you want to give this mm-hmm. to your brother – you know, you can't introduce us to your brother the day before you're leaving, right? It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the other thing is that if you, relationships matter, 
So you never pull the rug out from someone. You have to give them in, – in many businesses, if you give them clear um, – uh, if you're clearly communicating and you're saying, look, you know, we understand what you want to do with your business. Uh, we can appreciate that. It's not the kind of lending we want to be doing. So over the course of the next year or so, you know, we think maybe you should shop for someone who's got mm. – who's better aligned with what you want to do. Um, and that fi- lets them find a, a good home. It's also very important at a commercial bank that you manage the quality of your balance sheet all the time. You're always making these fine tunings and saying, okay, this is a great client three years ago. They had a hard time, but they're working with us. You know, we can get through this. They're cooperating. Let's Mm -hmm. get through it. Or they've had a hard time. They're making some decisions that we don't think are in the best interest of the company or the bank. That's a time to encourage them to maybe go a a different route. Very good. Do I have time for one more, Mike? Go for it. All right. All right, so now I'm imagining, Chris, that this decision is not a unilateral decision on your part, but rather an illustration of what Mike sometimes called deliberative decision-making, so that you are pulling in the opinions of others. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, the process, uh, especially for commercial credit, is quite involved. We have no one in our company, for example, has we call a single pen. So they, they, no one can just run out and lend money, including myself. Um, every, everything is dual authority. You need more than one person involved in a decision. And then as the decisions get larger, we involve more people. So you know, we have a credit committee uh, so that it, a, 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 a potential transaction would come to a credit committee. It gets deliberated on by a series of professionals who've got long histories in the business. Uh, but interestingly, it all does fall on the shoulders of that commercial lender who manages the relationship mm. to have that conversation with the client. So the client never has to deal with a committee or multiple people. Uh, they're going to deal mm. with their lender. And, you know, in, in most cases, their lender's been with them for years. There's a strong relationship. They know each other. Um, and uh, and we, never, we never surprise our clients. I think surprises are, sh- sh- just shouldn't be happening. You need to be mm. managing that relationship over time. That's great. Good. Thank you. Uh, Chris, to... to in a sense, reverse the relationship here on finding out about them before you make them alone. You've got investors who want to find out about you. <laughs> and is it not almost a reversal where you are with uh, – I assume you've got a couple analysts that pay a lot of attention, maybe a couple firms that own a lot of your stock. And my guess is they want to know a lot about you. They want to know a lot about the top team, the, all the people in the C-suite and well beyond. So just – Talk us through how you would – it's not even making a pitch, but just tell your story to an investor or an analyst in a way that convinces them to stay in the stock. It's, it's a very important part of the job for, for several reasons. The first is these folks own significant shares in the company. They made material investments in the company and in us, and they deserve to get clear and thoughtful information and responses on a regular basis. Um, and then to improve the liquidity for all shareholders, we want to make sure that there's a steady pool of people that have an interest in the shares so that if one, if one investor wants to come or go, you've got somebody behind that. So that process, um, we actually we manage in a very comprehensive way. So you have all of the required SEC disclosures that you want to be careful about. But we hold, for example, and many larger companies do this, we have a quarterly earnings call. Um, on, a, on a periodic basis, we will have uh, – last year we had an investor day where we invited our prospective investors and existing investors to come in. We're followed by nine analysts, so we talk mm. with them on a regular basis. And we get out on the road and visit our investors all the time. In fact, 
uh, last year, and we tracked this, last year we had, I think it was uh, almost 250 discrete conversations with investors uh, about, mm. you, know, you know, they will ask about trends in the industry and all that. And that's the way you build credibility. That's the way you build familiarity with the company and the mission. And, and our, you know, our most significant investors will tell you they invest in management, not in a balance mm-hmm. sheet uh, <laughs> because balance sheets kind of come and go and environments change, but they're investing in management because they want to understand the decisions we make. So it's important that – and by the way, it's not just me. We have all the senior officers of the company involved and uh, you know, I'm certainly involved a great deal of the time, but we have uh, many other officers involved as well. Let's stay on that for just a second. When you, let's say, bring an analyst in, I am anticipating that they want to spend time with you. They probably want to talk with your CFO, maybe your head of marketing. And if you've got separate divisions, they probably want to talk to the, let's make it the top five or ten people. So is that true? And then if it is true, how do you ensure that your top team is all playing from the same sheet of music? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think you want your top team playing for the same shoot of music for a lot of reasons, right? So not you, just that. You, that's yeah. right. You should be if you're doing that in your day to day. The investor stuff becomes a little bit easier. Yeah. But uh, but you're right to point out that they will they want a multifaceted view of the company. Uh, there, every industry has hot topics. The hot topics for us now are how are we managing mm-hmm. the digital transition? You know, the digital mm-hmm. divide. Um, how are we dealing with the interest rate environment? And in, you know, and what. Uh, how is our company positioned for both the immediate future, the next you know four to six quarters? But in the event that there is, uh, let's say, a weakening in the economy down the road, you know, why is it that they should remain invested in us and you know, kind of stick through this kind of period? So they will want to synchronize, make sure that the same an- they're getting the same answers from me, from our CFO, our COO, um, and each of the business line heads. So um, we have to talk from the same book. But I think it's important that if we're yeah. talking from the same book anyway, the investor stuff should come more naturally. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a station break in just about 30 seconds. But just to make a broader point from what you've said, uh, we often will say this on our side, that leadership is uh, definitely more than skin deep. So it's you, <laughs> but it's also the people that you have on your top team. So when we think about the leadership of the company, magazines tend to put the chief executive on the cover of the magazine story about the company but it's really about the top 10, 15, or maybe even more than that. What do you think? Oh, there's no question about that. In fact, every day, you know, I'm sitting here today, there are people back at the bank running the place, right? <laughs> right. So okay. if, if, they're yeah. not, if they're not getting it yeah. right, we're in big trouble. Yeah. So, right. yeah. That allows good. you to come to the show. So, <laughs> right. Well, thanks to them. Uh, we are going to take a short uh, station break here. Stay with us. Um, I'm Mike Yassim. I'm with Ann Greenhall. And we're in active discussion with uh, Christopher Marr of Ocean First Financial. And when we come back, just as an anticipation, I think we will talk about what is sort of abbreviated these days as FinTech, the onslaught of technology and digitalization of everything and how radically that is beginning to upend the equations that you have to deal with, Chris. So we'll come back. We'll talk about that. In the meantime, you are listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM Channel 132. You're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Leadership in Action, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School at Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Mike Yuseem, and I'm with my friend here and colleague Anne Greenholm, and we are in active discussion in the studio this evening with Christopher Marr. 
president and CEO of Ocean First Financial and Ocean First Bank. And uh, during the break, we had a bit of a discussion here in the studio and reminded that the bank uh, sits on about $8 billion of of assets that it um, actively manages. It's got more than 60 branch offices. And uh, to slide back then into our discussion, Chris, great to have you here. Uh, Offices, branch offices have been very important historically, but with the onset of the Internet, they are becoming not less important, but they're now parallel in importance with online banking. So it's all about financial technology, fintech for short, and take it away. Yeah. Well, before the Mm. uh, break, you were talking about uh, Mm. making a case to investors and analysts and a number of the issues that you you mentioned – Digital transition, mm. interest rates, planning for the for the short term and the long term. So let's pick up where Mike left off on um, the question of the digital transition. So it's it's important to see in many industries, and banking is not immune, that the digital transformation of our economy is changing things fundamentally and at a very rapid pace. And I like to think about it two ways. The the first is. That I think sometimes there's an impression, especially in banking, that we're trying to drive our customers to a certain place. Um, we're following our customers. Our mm. customers want the convenience that these services offer, and it's the convenience, ease of use, and the power that they can have uh, in the new technologies that is driving them there. So I think it, it's all about following our customers' needs. The second thing is, not unlike uh, players like Amazon, we have a, a group of very disruptive but very smart fintechs who have honed in on this customer experience. And what they're delivering is the experience a customer wants to have, you know, getting away from the bureaucracy, not making things hard, making them easy. And the challenge for traditional companies, whether you're a bank or a retailer, is how do you capture and transform yourself so that you're meeting the need of the customer, being much, much more convenient than you've ever been in the past. Mm, so how do you do that? <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think across the industry, mm-hmm. people are doing it at different paces. We're committed to this transition. And I'll, I'll give you an example Great. of what it, what it means. When we, op- we open an account online, you know, through a mobile account device, you know, on, on your cell phone, that's kind of the epicenter of all of this. Forget about kind of PC right. banking yeah. and all that. It's, it's all about mobile. Yeah. Uh, We are now using engineers to figure out how can we make this process the absolute easiest process for our customer, counting screens, counting fields, Mm -hmm. counting individual characters Mm -hmm. so that you can pull out the complexity and be able to still meet the customer's needs. So getting, for example, in our mobile account opening, getting that account opening to substantially less than 10 minutes is a a, a tremendous uh, uh, both benefit to the customer and opportunity for us. So. Um, in different parts of our business, investing is another part. Uh, we have a, a partnership with a, a local Philadelphia company called Nesteg, and that's about allowing people that may have more modest sums of money to invest, as little as $1,000, to be actively invested in a low-cost, low-fee. Um, it's a, you know, People in the industry mm-hmm. call it a robo-advisor. We mm-hmm. call it a, a hybrid because we've got people assigned to it as well. Uh, but it's about making that easy. Answer a few questions. We'll get your risk profile, put you in some inexpensive ETFs, and make sure you're invested for the long term. So it's all about ease of use, and it, it's really copying the the kind of innovation you would see out of someone like Amazon or Apple. And the demographic that you're targeting for this. Well, it's interesting. When I first joined the business, you know, people would say, "Oh, yeah, well, you know, those uh, the older people they're not going to use an ATM and." 
Um, those folks are, are gone. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that was a long time yeah. ago. Uh, we see adoption of the, of the technology across a wide spectrum. I'll tell you a fascinating um, a point. We have a video tower service where we've got 14 locations where you just come up. You don't need a card. You just come up, press a button, talk to a video agent. They're all in one place and they can handle anything you want to do. They can do a loan payment. They can cash a check. <laughs> um, so we deploy these initially at uh, senior citizen uh, retirement communities. And uh, if you saw the adoption and the interest among folks huh. that are in their 80s and even their 90s, it's fascinating. They huh. they see a person. So it's all technology, right? They see a person across the screen, uh, but they adopt it quickly. They enjoy it. They still have a connection with people. So we don't have to open a, a tremendously expensive branch, but they still get that personal connection. So obviously, you know, the, the younger demographic uh, is going to, uh, move to this stuff more quickly, mm-hmm. uh, but it does mm. cut across all segments. Okay, great. Do you have uh, interest as well in maybe middle to lower income uh, prospective clients? That's a tremendous opportunity. I think one of the biggest issues we face as a country is this income gap mm-hmm. and how you're getting services to people of more modest income levels. Okay. And technology can really unlock that. Uh, if you look at the number of people in the country that are not banked today, and then they pay a tremendous price because they have to do alternative things to banking in order to get through their day. So they are resorting to using a payday lender to get a payday advance. Mm-hmm. The the actual cost on that, especially if you express it as like an interest rate, is, is unbelievable. And I think we have this opportunity with technology to lower mm-hmm. the cost of these services and to distribute them out. And one thing you'll note about just about any demographic in the country today is that no one seems to have an issue getting a mobile device and a smartphone, right? So, and I understand there's a certain expense with that, and it's not easy, uh, but that does not seem to have been a barrier. So yeah. they've got that device, and if we can deliver to that device, uh, I think it's a real win. I will tell you that the biggest challenge in that is compliance. It's a, it's all about regulations, mm-hmm. and um, it's uh, it's mm-hmm. very inexpensive for us to deliver a low-fee or no-fee account across a, a mobile platform. Uh, handling your obligations under the Bank Secrecy Act, the Anti-Money Laundering Act, watching where the cash is going, tracking transactions, that's where the expense is on these accounts, and that's been one of the barriers. Mm. Do I have a chance for one more here, Mike? No, go for it. All right. Now, I'm really out of my depth here, but, you know, <laughs> just mm. I'm going to go for it. So any interest then in something mm. like Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. So uh, Bitcoin specifically or cyber uh, currency, right, right, is, a, right. Is, a, a, is, a, is a wider field. We think they're going to make a difference in the industry but not in the short term. Mm-hmm. And you're first going to start to see them in large complex transactions. So if you mm-hmm. think about a commercial real estate transaction of a complicated property that might be a building with you know, multiple condo leaseholds in it and you've got a lot of money changing hands where the integrity of the transaction is extremely important – and, and facilitating that through a cryptocurrency could be a, a tremendous opportunity. You can also use the aspects of cryptocurrency for really high-quality identification. Uh, so being able to identify people is, from a cybersecurity standpoint is going to be very important. But we think you're going to see those um, – You know, Walmart's doing some interesting things about the way they're paying their um, – um, uh, the, the folks that provide them with product and the way they're handling shipping invoices and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. So you'll see it in large, complex uh, commercial transactions. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it might be five or ten years before it really mm-hmm. boils down to something you'd seen every day. Yeah. I ask because of the question of compliance. 
if it would make that a little bit easier? I think down the road it will mm-hmm. uh, because you're going to have the integrity of the transaction, mm-hmm. which is kind of the heart right. of what you're doing there. So if you know the, the transaction has integrity, uh, that's going to make a lot of transactions easy. But I think it's going to start in the big commercial transactions. Chris, I've got a question very much like Anne's about uh, where where the digital kind of the evolution or almost a revolution is going. Is the day coming when I can sit in my office and I can say this, uh, Alexa, I need a $20,000 home equity loan, and I hear their Ocean First is giving great rates. Work it out. So that's out there already or that's coming? You know, that, that is probably not very far away. Yeah. So the uh, you're seeing in, in those technologies, kind of the automated assistant technologies, hmm. and they're going to improve the customer process. The other thing that we have to be ready for is that they're going to change the um, margin dynamics in our kind of business. So if you think about uh, profit margins coming out of retail, profit margins are coming out of financial services too. So when you can turn to Alexa and say, Alexa, I'd like a home equity loan. Can you find five banks that will do it for me and at mm. what rate? Uh, we need to be prepared for that. Uh, I think one one really good way to address that is to make our processes – as high quality, meaning fast, simple, easy to use, so that the default will be, look, I already bank with you. I'll go to you first, and I'll give you a shot. And if I ask you for a home equity, and you can do it very quickly, I'll probably be less price sensitive. So I think the relationship will matter, but we're going to have to be on our toes. So, Chris, uh, your your fluency in this area is obvious, and my guess is when you began in banking, there wasn't any such thing as the internet and all that, or maybe it was just coming in at that time. So thinking now about the kind of leadership you have to exercise in a world that is now very digital, very flat, <clears throat> people still want branch offices. I think there's still that human factor very strongly felt in banking, but all that said, uh, talk with us a bit about how you yourself have evolved your own thinking and have mastered um, cryptocurrencies and the fact that a Siri may be out there in your future as well. So how, how have you made yourself stay abreast of all these developments? You know, I think the idea of reinventing your own skill set is going to be critical to um, anyone. I mean, if you think of your graduating college today, I've got some, some kids of my own that are out in the world. Um, they're not going to have one career. They're going to have three, four, five careers. And I've been fortunate in my mm-hmm. career. I've been a lender. I've been a branch manager. I've been a regional manager. I've run a consumer lending group. Uh, but you need to have that willingness to get out of your comfort zone. Um, you have to have that commitment to make the decisions and stick to them uh, to get things done. We, I'll give you a very uh, clear example. We, have, um, we consolidated over the course of the last couple of years 34 branches. And that is not an easy thing emotionally uh, or operationally to go out and work with your staff and say, look, these 34 places are redundant. Our customers don't need them. Almost all of them were the second or third branch in the same town. Mm -hmm. There's no customer value there. But we needed to start a digital banking group that was going to have expertise in the areas we're talking about today. That group didn't exist three years ago. We have 50 people in that group today. I could not have afforded to resource that group unless I made the hard decisions about contracting the branch network. Now, we still have branches. We think they're really important, but they serve a very different purpose. So you need to have that willingness to be committed, to know where you're going, that kind of leadership presence to say, we're going to go someplace that may be over the hill that you can't see right now, but this is where we're going. Let's all get together and get there. 
It's great. So you've been out of your comfort zone more than once or twice along the way, I suspect. <laughs> yeah, it's happened. Uh, I'm just going to remind listeners that I'm Mike Yassim. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. We are, you are listening to Leadership in Action, business radio powered by our school, the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. And we're in the studio this evening with Chris Marr, president and chief executive of Ocean First Financial. If you got a question, give us a call, 844-942-7866. Oh, great. Well, Chris, I have some another follow-up question or two. So we've talked a little bit about the digital transformation uh, and at the risk of seeming like a boring person, how do you anticipate interest rates? <laughs> what are you doing to prepare? <laughs> well, you know, this, that's a really big question right now. You know, the the, uh, the yield curve is, you know, flat, you know, inverted in certain mm-hmm. comparisons. Um, there's all that concern that, oh, my goodness, that, you know, tends to lead to a recession. Where are we mm-hmm. going to be? Um I think you've got – it's interesting. Banks are kind of lumped together as though they're all the same. And in fact, you've got very different styles of bank. And uh, so we're a full-line community regional bank. We offer commercial banking, consumer banking. Um, we are not in you know major international bank. So I'll give you a, a very interesting perspective. We should never take interest rate risk. That's not our job, not the kind of bank we are. I don't know where rates are going. I will never mm. know where they're going. Even if you looked at – if you took what they call the dot plots from the Fed mm-hmm. and then looked at what actually happened with rates, even the Fed doesn't know where rates are going, right? If Because you, <laughs> you poll the governors and they say this is where we think rates are going to go and they haven't gone that way. So, um, so what we do is we decide we're going to take credit risk, which we can manage. Uh, we may take liquidity risk. We may take operating risk in you know, things like cybersecurity. But we're not tolerant of interest rate risk. So mm. we've built a company – that performs well in a wide variety of interest rates. So rising rates, falling rates, flat rates. Now, certainly there's a, there's a little bit of a headwind this year. This flat rate scenario is the worst scenario you, I think you could have for most banks. But that's a scenario where our margins will remain relatively intact. Uh, we've got very good funding sources. We planned for this five years ago. If you didn't plan for this five years ago, it's too late. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. if you run your business in a disciplined way, where you're not overcommitting yourself to long-term loans that don't reset, where your funding is not hot funding that, you know, is going to spiral up in costs, you know, every, every week. Um, if you stick to the fundamentals and you run a, a good balanced shop, it's not going to have that big of an impact. And, and that's borne out. We had actually last year were record earnings for us uh, for in the company's history. Uh, and yeah, we'll probably repeat that or even better that this year. Hmm. So how do you learn that, Chris? You know, as you're coming up in, the, in probably any business, but you have mentors, mm-hmm. and mentors teach you things. And uh, it's usually I, – and, and I, I talk to the younger guys around the interest rate table today. We call it the ALCO <laughs> table. And I, and I actually tell them, I, I hope you're listening because in 20 years, you're going to be doing this, and you, you, you need to understand these rules. Uh, but you get taught those things over time, and it's usually someone at the table who's got a little more gray hair than you that's been through cycles, that can tell you a story about uh, things ending badly. And you have to be thoughtful. You have to know that you're not uh, – you also have to be humble. And yeah. you have to say, you know what, I can't control that. I don't know where rates are going. And I may have a guess. Like I could give you a guess on where rates are going. Mm-hmm. However, that's not um, – I cannot take that guess and bet my shareholders money on it. Mm-hmm. I have a fiduciary obligation to them. I've told them what I'm doing, and, and you mentioned earlier, how do we communicate with our shareholders? When we talk to them, we're very clear about what we do and what we don't do. So we've told them we're running the company this way. It's not a company that engages in interest rate risk. Uh, 
if you want a company that gauges right. an interest rate risk, there are some out there, <laughs> yes. and but it's not us, right. so don't invest in us. So you know, it, it's a it's a hard balancing act. You know, you're never perfect, but you can be directionally correct. But you have to be humble. You have to listen. You have to have learned over the course of time. And I, I, one of the guys I worked for years ago said, you know, it's it's one thing to learn from mistakes. It's far better to learn from someone else's mistakes. <laughs> yes, um, so. that's true. How about preparing yeah. for the long run and the possibility of a contraction in the economy? Yeah, and the, the, that's absolutely something that's top of mind. A lot of people mm-hmm. are saying, look at where the economy is. It's the It'll be the longest expansion on record as of this summer. It's the second longest as of right now. Um, a couple observations. The first is that expansions tend not to die of old age. Okay, so they don't just die because they're old. <laughs> they die because something happens. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean something couldn't happen. It could. But if you look at where uh, unemployment rates are, consumer confidence, business confidence, um, there's always the possibility. But it doesn't look like that's a near-term threat. So we're probably out maybe a year or two years before that becomes a, a, a bigger threat. The second thing is if you look at the net growth since the last recession, it's actually been quite modest compared to prior recoveries. So there, there could be room to go. So you you wind up in this position of saying, I don't think there's going to be a recession, but I need to plan for one mm-hmm. uh, because that is the other prudent thing to do is to say, while I don't think there's going to be one, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what's going to happen with trade wars. I don't know what's going to happen with China. I don't know what's going to happen with Brexit. These things could cause contagions. I don't understand what you know might happen with North Korea. So um, you, know, you, don't, you don't stop your business. You continue mm-hmm. to make good loan decisions. But you're thoughtful and you say um, – and I'll give a very good example. Think about construction loans. We're actively lending on construction projects today. However, we're very discriminating about what projects. We need to be able to see that there's a near-term absorption of the construction we're doing. That could be a build to suit. It could be uh, the latter stages of, say, a multifamily building that's going to be leasing out in May. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone came to us with a project now that said, hey, look, you know, this is going to be dirt for four years – while I get approvals, and then I'm going to build something. There's too much time. We can't we can't gauge what the absorption of that um, that space would be. Now there are other banks who deal in that every day, but that's not us. Thank you, Chris. We've got a, only a couple minutes here to uh, wrap up and and then begin to close down. And I think I've heard in your in your commentary here that you spend a lot of time on what tends to be called enterprise risk management. And I'm also thinking if we had the same conversation 10 years ago with the chief executive at that time, probably less attention was going to ERM than now. Is that Does that capture a, a development you've seen in your own professional career? Oh, there's no question that the professionalization of enterprise risk management uh, has increased over the course of my career, but in particularly and very acutely after the last crisis. And it's not just about any one aspect. And that's what the enterprise title means. I think people throw the word around because it's kind of a you know a popular word. But it means we have to be equally concerned about interest rate risk, credit risk, cyber risk, yeah. operating risk, human risk. You know, we, we take human uh, risk, human resource bets on people <laughs> every day. So, and it's very easy to let one of those risks looms so large that you can't see the others, you know, the mm. forest for the mm-hmm. trees issue. Mm-hmm. So the enterprise nature of it, of looking at everything, but also looking at it in a balanced way has made leaps and, and has moved in leaps and bounds over the last few years. So, Chris, I'm thinking your career as we go back on our discussion tonight included working on the commercial side, on the retail side, on the back office. These days, thinking about ERM, 
working with equity analysts, working with your board and well beyond. And for an individual who is, let's make it um, maybe 10 years out of a university degree, they're in financial services, and they really would like to do what you do, which is to take (laughs) responsibility for a lot of people and a lot of assets. What career advice would you have for somebody, let's say they're about 30, they've been in banking already for five or 10 years, what do they need to do now? Well, the first may sound trite, but the first thing I would say is is do your current job extremely well. well. <laughs> make sure you make sure you learn it and you know it. Um, and then, um, as institutions have become larger, one of the wonderful things that I had the opportunity to do, which is harder today, is to get the breadth of experience. And so, you need to do your current job well, but you also need to be willing to take risk. So, there were a couple times in my career where I took a job that paid the same. Or in a couple of cases, Mm. less than the job I was in Mm. because it allowed me to learn an area of banking that I really didn't know. And I think you need to accumulate that breadth. Um, And then, you know, it does not go out of style that those core leadership attributes are really important. Communication, uh, respect, Mm. the way you handle yourself uh, personally and professionally, the way you treat people. Um, you need to be really careful that you're doing the kinds of things that earn you the right to be in a leadership position. It's great. Mm. Chris, it's been a real privilege to have you on the program. And for listeners who really want to find out more about you or Ocean First Bank or Ocean First Financial, well, what should they do? I think the best thing, especially in this day and age, go to OceanFirst.com. That'll do it. Uh, and that'll do it. That'll cover everything that you need to know and probably stuff that uh, that you didn't. So. so the marvel of the digital everything age is we can find out about you instantly. It's it's out there. So, Chris, thanks for being, yeah. with, being Thank with us so tonight. Much. This has been great. <laughs> oh, I had a great time. Thanks for having me. Okay, and we're going to do a very brief after-action review. Right. And uh, Chris is still with us in the studio. He's going to yeah. be a witness to it. Oh, boy. Basic idea. <laughs> is to pick out a couple thoughts that we want to hang on to, and by implication, listeners may want to think about uh, once they finish up this program and go on with their lives. So what have you got on your side? All right, Mike. Well, uh, I don't think I'll surprise you when I say that one theme that comes across for me is the importance, of course, of the technical side, the math. You need to do the math. But you also need to be mindful that relationships Mm. matter all the way through, both in your personal career as you work your way up the ladder, but also as you work with uh, customers, clients, and investors, analysts, shareholders. So I would say it's that both sides of the equation really stand out. I think I've got the same theme, different words, but saying the same thing uh, from Chris, the idea of getting out of your comfort zone repeatedly and in doing that, learning other functions, other parts of the business, other um, customers that are out there. And maybe that sums up in, in over time ensuring that you build a breadth of experience so you've got a breadth of understanding. And thus, thinking about Chris's job, if you think about being at the kind of the, at the fulcrum point, he's got to manage a whole lot of people, a whole lot of assets, and a whole lot of stakeholders. And to do that well and to get the job done and report a good returns at the end of the quarter and keep stockholders happy uh, seems to me breadth of experience and being out of your comfort zone is the road ahead. What do you yeah, think? I, yeah, I agree, Mike, and I have one more. Character matters. <laughs> Character matters, and, you yeah. know, if you think back to the top of the hour, just in judging whether or not you're going to be giving someone a loan, <laughs> uh, are they 
giving you their story or someone else's story? Yeah. <laughs> uh, are they able to speak to this in detail and authentically? Or, you know, when you are looking to uh, step into a, the role of CEO, character mm-hmm. matters, how you conduct yourself. Other people need to have uh, respect for you. You know, it's such a reinforcing point that comes also from four or five people we've had on the program who are in private equity. And I'm always impressed in our conversations with them how much emphasis they put on the the plan, the technology mm-hmm. that the startup is in. But 50% of the decision still depends on the quality of, of the key man or woman who's there and the team they've built up. And even here at a large uh, commercial bank, I think we're hearing the same thing. Right. We want uh, we want a great balance sheet. We want a great plan. We want the, the investment we might be making by way of a commercial loan to ultimately make sense and get paid back. And the way we know it's going to work probably or it depends importantly is on the quality of the people that are signing your name at the bottom of the form. What do you right. think? I agree. And investors are investing in management. <laughs> <laughs> We, we heard that. In we heard state. that loud and clear. <laughs> and I think in that sense, uh, a part of Chris's job here is to ensure that investors and the, the um, often skeptical analysts appreciate who he is and what he brings to the table. So, all right, everybody, that's it for tonight. And thank you for the comments there. If you've got a question about us, you know where to find us. We're Business Radio at SiriusXM.com. Special thanks to our guest again, Christopher Marr. I want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, who is not here tonight. And sitting in her position and also (laughs) running all the sound engineering is one Jeffrey Simmons. Jeffrey, thank you. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm here with Ann Greenhall. You've been listening to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius Channel 132. Come back. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 